Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Rob Warner, and today I'm joined by staff reporter Jack Harris, as well as site publisher Chris Cartman. Guys, how are we doing today? Doing good, Rob. It's very rainy out. Uh, people don't know how to drive in the rain. really annoys me. But outside of that, great. I don't think people in Arizona are great drivers. Well, no, that's a thing, but especially in the rain. I like, don't... I don't think people in the Bay Area are very good drivers. <laughs> That's true. They don't ever the, have I think to people drive. in the Bay Area are much better drivers than I think people when, in the Bay Area. When do people of course, in the well, Bay Area we already, drive? We, we, know that you would think, <laughs> we know that you would think that, Rob. Did yeah, you know that uh, the Bay Area has the best sports fans, like better than Boston or just anywhere else in the country? They are amazing. Yeah. Bay Area sports fans are pretty good. Bay we're gonna, Area. We're, <laughs> we're going to move on, though. On this episode of the Sun Devil Surf Report podcast, we've got a breakdown of Eno Benjamin's historic night, why the ASU defense struggled so much against the run of Oregon State, what ASU's offense will look like going forward, how did the Pac-12 do in Week 5, and news on ASU's men's basketball team and its roster, and what this win does for ASU football going forward. We make our weekly Pac-12 picks in the premium podcast, so far, Chris is 5-0 in predicting how ASU will do against the spread, so put your money down right now or next Thursday, whatever you'd prefer. More likely, um, you'll probably, probably lose the next few. <laughs> okay, regress to the mean. What are you, 21-6 and six against the spread so far this season or something? Yes. Um, we'll get those numbers later on in the podcast, but right now, moving on to the offense, some quick numbers about ASU's performance. ASU put up 558 yards, 396 of those on the ground. ASU converted 7 of 12 third downs, 2 of 3 on fourth downs, and ASU held the ball just under 29 and a half minutes, just a minute under Oregon State. No bearing the lead on this podcast, though. We know Benjamin stole the show, as Kygo would say. He rushed 30 times for 312 yards, three touchdowns, one on the ground, one through the air, three catches for 27 yards in the TD I just mentioned. In very unsurprising news, he was named Pac-12 Player of the Week. Um, he was just John Simon was just talking about him, saying he wasn't surprised by the performance because this is something he expects from, as he says, Eno B. Yeah, I think that to me is the biggest takeaway of all of this is how uh, unsurprised everybody is about this. Uh, after the game, I was following Eno around on the field and. There wasn't really any sign that he was having some sort of special night. Like, he was just pretty ho-hum about things. During one of his TV interviews, he mentioned that he wasn't even that tired because of how well the guys were blocking in front of him. It wasn't really until he saw his family that, like, he, he perked up a lot, and I wrote about that in the, in the game story. And, and today, on Tuesday, when he was speaking to the media, he referenced how, you know, people at his high school back in Wiley, Texas, like, they weren't surprised because they saw him do this all throughout his high school career where he could – you know, shoulder the load and run the ball 31 times in a game like that for, for you know, the kind of crazy numbers he did. Um, I think, to, to me, that, that game for him is kind of, it's like the coming out moment for him, I think, to uh, the large portion of the ASU fan base. Uh, Rob Likens felt that way as well after the game. Um, we've heard from coaches and players all throughout the offseason how good this running back core is led by, you know, Benjamin. But, you know, there was fair skepticism of, will they really be able to come in and replace what DeMario Richard and Kalen Balaj do? It's pretty clear now that, you know, the explosiveness that Eno Benjamin has, the ability to press up to the line, to cut, then to break a tackle, then to spin and still be at full speed coming out of all of that. Um, it, it's pretty it's pretty special skill he has, and he, and he really put everything together in that game. And to give just a little bit of credit to Chris, he's been saying since last offseason that, that ASU could actually be better running the ball Without Richard and Balage, with with Eno Benjamin being the feature back, Chris, what was some of your perspective on this historic performance? Never seen anything like it, and 
Of course, the caveat being that Oregon State's defense is about as bad as you're going to see in the Pac-12. Uh, but it, the as Jack was saying, the tackle breaking, um, whatever the yardage was after first contact, 170 something yards, mm-hmm. and breaking 20 tackles, that was that was pretty amazing. And I I too was struck by just how nonchalant that he was about it. And I I, I guess that just comes from. The fact that his whole life he, he's been able to do that to everybody. Uh, he had 4,700 rushing yards in, in high school. Uh, he had 12 100-yard games as a senior in high school, 2,587 rushing yards, average 7.2 yards per carry. So you're just like – you're programmed to think that that's normal when, when that's what you've done your whole life. But the higher the level that you go, the harder that it actually is. So for you to say that that's still normal when that's the case is quite something. Mm-hmm. ASU's only had a couple guys even have 200-yard games this century, going back 18 years. So for Benjamin to go over 300 pretty easily and on 30 carries, no less. Right. Um, you know, One of the things we looked at the record book, and ASU has it broken down by you know, fewer than 10 carries – uh, you know, 11 to 20 carries, 21 to 30 carries, and then over 31 carries. Well, the most number of yards per carry that anyone's averaged in ASU history with over 31 carries is um, 6.9 by Woody Green in a game against Utah in 1971. Well, Eno Benjamin was one carry away from qualifying for that, and yet he averaged 10.4 yards per carry. That's like freaky. And then, Rob, you also had some really good stats that I'm going to let you uh, convey, which showed what Benjamin did in this game compared to what ASU did all of last season. And and for, for perspective, he had two touchdown runs of 47 yards and then 44 yards. Last year, through three games, ASU had one run of over 20 yards. That was by Kalen Balazs. It was a 20-yarder exactly. Uh and then through four games, ASU had only three carries of 20 or more yards. For the whole season, in terms of carries over 40 yards, ASU had two carries the entire season. Benjamin obviously had two in this game, and neither of those touches went for a touchdown last year for ASU. On the entire season last year, ASU running backs only had six times rushing the ball over 20 yards. And I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of those runs was Balazs and one of them was Demario Richard. It was. So, so the point is that... In one half of football, Eno Benjamin had more explosive runs of 40 that yards or more exactly what that means. than either of ASU's running backs did last year in the entire season. And in the bowl game, there was one run of 19 yards. That was the longest run in the bowl game for ASU. So, so even though that's 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 Oregon State, and you have to put that caveat in there. We saw ASU run the ball pretty well against Washington a week prior. We talked a lot last week about the gap scheme, stuff that they're now doing. And with Benjamin now well over 500 rushing yards for the season and second in the Pac-12 in yards per game averaged, you have to start questioning where he's going to end up on the the all-time single season mark because – you're looking at right. seven regular season games left. You got a bowl game potentially. That's eight games. Let's say he's anywhere around 100 yards a game if he stays healthy. Well, now you're talking about somebody that is among the top 10 seasons all time or uh, single season rushing record at ASU. And the other thing about this is this is all happening after a 26 carry performance at Washington that was very physical. Um, it's happening after the Michigan State San Diego State games. 
that's something Herm Edwards referenced in his postgame comments was, yeah, he knew that, that Eno Benjamin was an explosive back and he could tell his potential, but how would he handle being the feature back, being the number one back, getting 25 to 30 carries a game? I mean, you have to go back. Uh, Demario Richard had 30 carries uh, in a game in his career, or I think a couple games in his career where he had that many. Uh, and before that, I mean, you have to go back over 10 years to find another AC running back who did something like that. Um, that's something that is that is different about him, to be able to bounce back. Uh, it's something that we questioned during the preseason. Mm-hmm. We, we, and, you know, John Simon said, I have no worries about this guy. Um, I, I've seen what he's done in high school. And for all of that to be coming to fruition is really crucial for an ASU offense that Herm Edwards has made clear. He wants them to run the ball. He thinks it's the best way they can win on the road. He thinks moving forward it's going to be the best thing for them to do. And one more thing, just to kind of put a bow on this, uh, the comparison made by Herm Edwards of Eno you know, Benjamin was Curtis Martin, who he have coached, mm-hmm. of course, coached uh, with the New York Jets, and yeah. they're similarly sized guys. But what Eno Benjamin said is that it's the hard running style of a Curtis Martin to be able to get a lot of yards after contact, run between the tackles, and all that that he's impressed by. And so it's like the durability factor of. Benjamin that we're talking about here with Jack, if you're able to string together week after week of 25 or more carries and be durable, run inside, bring tackles, the tackle avoidance factor, all that stuff, that's what puts you into the conversation for uh, someone who has a chance, who's only a sophomore, to start to put up some 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 uh, numbers that can assault some record books at ASU. And I would really implore everybody, if they haven't already, go look at the highlights that we put up that Rob and, and, and Mason do. Because um, it really gives a, a good perspective of that kind of tough running style uh, that that I don't think is always you can tell when when you're watching from a broadcast angle. Yeah. How, how much do you guys think the the blocking overall contributed to this big night from Benjamin? I mean, I mean Casey Tucker was out, and, and Alex Lasoy had to fill in for him at, at left guard. The offensive line didn't yield a sack the entire night. So look, um, my preview for this game, I I said pretty clearly Oregon State's defense is is bad, like really bad. Uh, I thought it was a minimum 40-point and 500-yard from scrimmage type of a game for ASU going into it. So, yeah, they they ran Oregon State off the line of scrimmage, and they were getting their tight ends and and their fullback – to linebackers and and just taking them out of plays and the gap and and but again both of the runs that Benjamin had of 40 yards or longer mm-hmm. he broke tackles within the first 10 yeah. yards he had one that was I think 35 yards after initial contact and one that was almost like 40 yards after initial contact and you know he's hitting the whatever the button is on the PlayStation thing that does the spin move X. whatever it is boop and he's gone they, they you know ASU's football account on Twitter and Instagram, they put up the PlayStation control thing for, you know, Benjamin. But um, so, yeah, the blocking was the blocking was good, as good as it's been all, all season, but against a bad defensive front. And then, you know, Benjamin did some things that were really special. I just want to say like a few a, 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 a lot of those runs, they don't go for that sort of distance with most backs, most backs um, or a lot of backs, I should say, they're going to get 10 or 15 yards on some of those runs that he turned into being. 30 40 yard runs and senior quarterback Manny Wilkins struggled a little bit he referenced that in his his postgame press conference after the win against Oregon State he threw 14 for 25 passes for 162 yards three touchdowns he was pretty successful rushing the ball nine times for 61 yards missed a few deep passes though to Kyle Williams and to Frank Darby 
what did you guys make of his role? I mean, he was sick in this game, and everybody's a lot of a lot of players and coaches have talked about that and how that was a factor. Well, it seems like the thing that that people are worried about is now that ASU has run the ball more in the last two weeks, the passing game has has seen significant drop off. You know, back to back games under under two hundred yards and that kind of thing, and Nikhil Harry not putting up the huge stats he normally does. I mean, I would say last week against Washington the receivers weren't getting open against that kind of secondary and running the ball was, you know, was working and it kept them in the game. And then this past week, every time ASU did run the ball, they were getting at least four or five yards. And then if not, it had the explosive play factor. So I don't think like, I think it's a little too simplistic to say, Oh, they're going to run the ball more. That means that the passing game's not there. Uh, Manny Wilkins. I mean, he missed on a deep shot to Kyle Williams on a ball. He slightly overthrew. He still hit the deep shot to, to Nikhil Harry. Um, and I think moving forward, those kind of, those big plays are something that, that, that this offense is going to need when you're, you're facing tougher defenses that aren't going to miss as many tackles as Oregon State did, kind of allow the big plays on the ground. Um, look, I think the biggest concern you'd have with Manny Wilkins so far this year is he's been a little more inconsistent on those deep throws than he was last year. I mean, he had a really good passer rating on, I think it was throws of 20 or 25 yeah, yards downfield. 20 more yards. He, he's been overthrowing the ball a little bit, but I think – I mentioned this before, like you'd almost rather him overthrow a little bit on when you do take those shots than underthrowing it and putting the ball in danger and, and that kind of thing. Um, and with a senior, I mean, with a guy who showed last year he has the capability, you just kind of have to to figure it, it might come back around at some point. He has regressed a little bit this year, I think, on some of the, the, the big play shots. I thought he re- dramatically improved last year at those from – uh, what would be a sophomore campaign. I remember early in the season as a sophomore, um, you know, he had Nikhil Harry, and it was like they were – and uh, Kyle Williams as a freshman, playing a little bit on both sides. But he had some toys that he really couldn't fully play with. He just couldn't access some of those some of those big plays down the field. And then it, it kind of came together last season, and then this year that he's missed on some of them. And, but Rob Lykins said something that was really interesting – after ASU's Tuesday practice this week, um, essentially he said that um, when you run the ball successfully as they have this game and even against Washington, you're going to generate a lot of man coverage, essentially, because teams are going to either play man free with a safety over the top or maybe they're going to play cover three at a minimum. But you're going you're, you're, uh, you know, to get more man coverage and you're then going to just have to beat guys in man coverage. And... Um, so it's like almost like be careful what you wish for because then let's say you do get into those situations and you're not able to beat some guys. Well, that's just on your receivers. And of course, teams are going to uh, do whatever they can to make sure that that they're you know they're getting their best defensive back on Nikhil Harry. That in situations where they're not just in, in man across, that they've got somebody that's rolled over uh, to account for him. There's been times that we've seen this season where. Uh, Nikhil Harry will be lined up into the boundary and the, the team will have the, a, a zone safety over the top of a single receiver with three receivers on the other side all in man. Well, some of those guys are just going to have to beat people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you can move Nikhil Harry around the formation, but we saw him this week. He's in the secretariat where he's getting the direct snaps. He's been, you know... In, in every single alignment that you could have, mm-hmm. three by one, he's on the he's on the inside slot, he's in the middle, he's been on the outside. Um, you know, right. maybe you can do some more with the motions, but they remember they motion him into the backfield and out of the backfield some. 
So I, I think that part of it is gonna, you're going to just have to beat some more man coverages, but you're going to generate those mm-hmm. as a result of the this increased performance in the run game. It seems to me that it, that it is just a matter of time before it all gets put together. But like Jack said, if you're running the ball as successfully as you are, people really shouldn't even be talking that much about what, you know, that you right. didn't get some huge performance in your passing game because why would you if you have 300 and some odd rushing yards? Yeah, 396. Exactly. In, in terms of receiving, Nikhil Harry seemed like almost somewhat of an afterthought in this kind of a game. He finished, though, with six catches for 84 yards and a 41-yard touchdown. He also had that touchdown from the, secre- the Secretariat formation that Chris was referencing a moment ago. Kyle Williams had four catches for 39 yards and a touchdown. Brandon Ayuk, one catch. Benjamins, three catches. And then tight end Tommy Hudson with one catch of his own. Edwards seemed a little angry uh, or or a little bit frustrated after the game when he was talking about Harry's usage, uh, saying, and and continued to talk about the running, saying, uh, quote, first game we ran it okay. We had a lot of big explosion plays. I think the last couple weeks you kind of see what we're going to become, not just now, but as long as I sit in the seat. How have you guys seen that manifest into what ASU's tried to do? Well, I think that he was just a little bit uh, pushing back on some of the questions. When you look at what Nikhil Harry's done, his touchdown production is is up from last season. Mm-hmm. His yardage is not that statistically different. When you consider, like on a per-game basis at least, when you consider that they played Michigan State and Washington, which is two of the top four or five secondaries that they'll probably play this season. Um, so, and again, it's it's everybody knows when Nikhil Harry is yeah. and, and how much of a priority that he has to be to the game plan this year, much more than two years ago and even more than last year. And um, and then you have a, a Rob Likens, a first year coordinator, figuring out, you know, how do I get all these pieces kind of working and flowing? We did some reporting. Jack put up a story on this uh, just in the last you know 12 hours or so since as we're recording this. That was about um, just ASU still in this evolving sort of um uh, understanding of what its own capabilities and what it's going to be. But what they're doing, and I can't underscore this enough, they're trying to play a style that enables them the best chance to win football games when paired with their defense and their special teams. And so it's also trying to understand that as that sort of takes shape, depending on who you're playing and the games and whatever, that also matters. Complimentary football is yeah. the term Herm Edwards likes to use with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think like on a seventy-play game, I would imagine their preference is to do forty runs and thirty passes, and have a handful of those be deep shots, and other ones just be kind of drive-sustaining stuff. It's becoming very clear, especially as the defense, which we'll get into in a minute, has has struggled to to get themselves off the field, and, and while they haven't been getting a bunch of points scored on them, they also I mean, they, they've been shaky. Mm-hmm. Um, it's becoming clear that, that this coaching staff has decided the, the the best way for ACU to win games is by limiting possessions and, and you know, right. stretching out their drives. And, like, the things we talked about when we were previewing what Michigan State and San Diego State do in those, in those teams. So, um, I mean, you're, you're going to start getting into matchups now that I think are more – that puts ASU against teams that are more against their talent level. And that's where we're really going to see how this all plays out and if it works. It helped them stay in a game against Washington. It helped them put away a game against Oregon State. 
Um, it's once you start getting into this Pac-12 with all these teams that you just don't really know about um, that, that it's going to be tested. And moving on to that defense Jack was talking about, ASU flat-out struggled containing freshman running back Jamar Jefferson, who rushed 31 times for 254 yards and two touchdowns. And then an area that has been a, kind of a reoccurring theme that Edwards has referenced again and again is the third down issues. Oregon State converted 7 of 16 opportunities. Not a great clip, but a pretty solid clip when ASU would like to minimize that number. How concerning were both of those areas? Well, you have to look at the situations. The reason why... Oregon State was comfortable with third downs and successful is because those were more short Mm -hmm. distances. What Oregon State did was it stayed on schedule with its early down run success, which then made it harder for ASU to get stops on third downs, right? Because you can't pin your ears back and pressure when you're facing third and mediums. I mean, you can, but then you open yourself up to some situations. And what we've seen, Rob, is a continuation of ASU defensive coordinator Danny Gonzalez be sort of caught between being more aggressive on early downs with with run blitzing decisions versus trying to have some redundancy of coverages. In this game, what they did was eventually it, it – the fact that the Beavers were having more success, especially in that second quarter, which they had a really bad first quarter, eight yards, I think, total. Yeah, a couple sacks in that first quarter, too. And then the second quarter just sort of started getting away from ASU. And then I think what we saw in the second half, especially, was Gonzalez was a little bit frustrated, and he started to send more guys and say, hey, look, if you want to beat us, and Oregon State was trailing at this point in the Mm -hmm. game by a couple touchdowns for most of it, and and then what Oregon State only had like seven points in the second half, right? Yeah. So – it, it was better, but it did get away from them. I think the main thing is ASU is getting knocked off the football with its defensive ends. Its linebackers are not get, especially the outside linebackers, are not getting off of blocks or blowing enough up enough blocks in a way that enables other guys to come up. And we still see a lot of hesitancy and or missed opportunities from ASU safeties. They're either uh, – just not physical enough, not assertive enough, or not savvy enough in terms of being quickly reacting to what's happening. And that's allowing some of these, some runs that should be five to 10 yards are 15, 20 yards. Now they've done a very good job of avoiding the big, big plays. They had no 40 yard plays given up until this game. And they had one in this game, I think, right? right? It was the Isaiah Hodgins 44 yard catch. Correct. So, um, but yeah, there's just too many of these, and they still aren't physical enough, tough enough, savvy enough. And what happens is it allows teams to stay away from Rennell Wren in the middle and Darian Butler in the middle. Um, and and when, there's, when there's weak spots, and very obvious weak spots in, in ASU's run defense, it, it makes it a lot easier for teams to decide where they want to run the ball. Um, you know, like you go back to the Michigan State game, part of the problem was Michigan State – was was contained and was forced to run inside and it made ASU very effective stopping mm-hmm. the run and that hasn't been the case in the game since um and, and it's a like Chris said it's a it's a physicality thing I mean ASU has bigger defensive ends than Danny Gonzalez would probably prefer in this defense and yet uh they're it's it's not so much they're getting dominated every snap but when they do get dominated it's it's bad I mean there's a couple times like Shannon Foreman has just been thrown to the ground and driven back. Um, Jordan Hoyt played a lot more against Oregon State, but I don't know if he necessarily played very well against Oregon State. Um, you know, we've seen even from the cornerbacks, like Chase Lucas has missed 
a, a lot of tackles this year on runs that could have been stopped near the line of scrimmage that get into the second level. And then that's when you get linebackers or, you know, young, inexperienced linebackers, young, inexperienced safeties who are having to read some of these gaps and just aren't doing it well enough. Um, and that's going to be the biggest area of concern, I think, for ASU going forward. And, and that's why I think you're also seeing the changes on offense that are designed to, to try to limit the amount of mistakes and drives that, that ASU's defense has to play and, and could suffer. And, and backup quarterback junior Connor Blount was playing for Oregon State and struggled going 13 for 24 for 144 yards, one touchdown on the night. But like Chris was saying, he was under a pretty good amount of pressure from ASU, five sacks on the night, 11 11 tackles for loss for this ASU defense, and only the one big play really given up to Isaiah Hodgins, a 44-yard catch. Sophomore junior college transfer Taron Adams led ASU in tackles with eight. They were all solo tackles. He had two TFLs on the night. Darian Butler also had eight tackles, a few uh, combined tackles, though. He had one sack. And, and ASU ended the night with only one penalty for five yards. So, so with all that said, guys, overall, how do you think this ASU defense played this week? Well, I think it's it fits in with the whole theme of the season, which is... They're giving up a lot less points than they have in years past. They're giving up a lot less big plays than they have in years past. Um, and it's keeping them in games. That doesn't mean that they're playing extremely well. And right. it doesn't mean they're playing right. anywhere near Danny Gonzalez wants them to play. And I think that that's probably going to be the reality this year is they're going to have assignment errors just based on some of the personnel weaknesses they have and the overall newness of this scheme. And the trick's going to be how do you limit those things and, and keep them from, from really biting you? And against Washington, they did. Like, there were just a few too many mistakes that, that didn't allow ASU to to really have a chance to come back in that game. Um, and as you get into, like I said earlier, you're going to get into to much more evenly matched up games moving forward now. Um, and those those moments are going to become a lot more critical. It's This is a learning curve season. This is a, this is a season in which you have – a bunch of guys who haven't really played a lot. Even Jalen Bates hasn't played a lot for being a junior. J.J. Wilson converted to linebacker last year in the middle of the season. Your secondary is guys that have not played a lot other than one year of Kobe Williams and Chase Lucas. Um, and they and, and this, the defense is not that easy to learn. It's it's not. I'm not saying it's super hard. It's not that easy to learn, so um, I just think they're 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 going to be figuring it out on a week by week basis. The scheme is going to be fine, and but yet they're going to have periods of of play in games where they like the second quarter in that game against Oregon State, where it just doesn't look very good. Moving on to around the Pac-12, Colorado stomped UCLA, and Chip Kelly winning thirty-eight to sixteen. Utah at Washington State lost to the Cougars 28-24. I was disappointed in that one. I picked Utah to win that game. Then number eight, Notre Dame topped number seven, Stanford at home 38-17 as Bryce Love got dinged up a bit. Then number 11, Washington cruised over number 21, BYU 35-7 in Seattle. Number 19, Oregon went into Berkeley and handily defeated the Cal Golden Bears that were ranked number 24 last week. 42-24, that was a very predicted game by us on the podcast. And big, you, big weekend for the Bay Area schools. Uh, not a good big weekend for the Bay Area schools. Uh, and then USC over Arizona 24-20 after Arizona missed a extra point to help USC clear the three-and-a-half point spread. I thought that was funny. That made a new bad beats uh, for Scott Van Pelt. So, guys, thoughts on how the league did in week five? Uh, this was 
So Stanford losing, like if you want to go big picture, like Stanford losing really hurts the Pac-12 because yep. now all three of those North teams have one loss. Um, and I think from a Pac-12 South perspective, it's it's even more wide open now than it was before because Utah goes on the road and loses at Washington State. USC is able to knock off Arizona on the road. And, and you, you kind of go into, as ASU gets into their Pac-12 South schedule now, um, I mean, I, I'd say any of the teams aside from, from UCLA could still probably win the division. Uh, and I don't know how you even pick which team is best right now. I think mm-hmm. USC has the easiest schedule coming in by far. And probably, you know, they still have the most talent. So I'd, I'd say logic would, would make you say they're probably the favorite. But this this division, I mean, I, I think uh, I think Bruce Feldman called it the, the worst division of any conference in the playoff era. And I don't know if he's wrong about that. I mean, I haven't studied it, so it's <laughs> like that's a hard sort of thing to say, but um, definitely not good. And I agree that USC probably is a front runner now because of its schedule. There's a there's a pretty good possibility that a three loss team wins the South. Mm-hmm. I would say it's a, you know no worse than fifty fifty that that happens. It happened twice before. And, yeah, right. And so the main thing here is that. Some of these games, ASU Colorado, ASU USC, USC Colorado, Utah against a couple of these of those teams. Yep. Arizona already played USC, but Arizona Utah, Arizona Colorado. Though the some of these games are now like they, they there's a lot of significance to them, um, and I mean I think that. It's not like it's an elimination game, but if ASU loses at Colorado for its second loss, and then you still have half the schedule left, yeah. that's tough, right? So, really tough to regroup from. So th- it's just such a big game, and and it's a pretty, it's a hard game to forecast. Like you put this game in a neutral environment, no crowd, weather's good. I think they they each they may be like sp- split. Five, five, five. If they play ten games, you know, one team maybe wins six, the other one wins wins four. Right. So what it what it comes down to is you just have to in the game that you actually do play, it's it's who doesn't turn the football over, who doesn't have the special teams error, who makes a big special teams play, fewer penalties. Yeah, I mean all those things. Mm-hmm. It's it's really the little things, you know, who drops in key situations. It could come down to all these little kind of things. And who really knows? And we're going to have more, obviously, on, on what Colorado. Although I have been pretty good at <laughs> I was going to uh, say, the uh, guy who's 20-6 and six against the spread might. I think I've only, only missed one Pac-12 game against the spread in two weeks. Sure. <sighs> Don't toot your own horn too much, Chris. What if you start getting I just wrong? want want. Listen, I just want people to subscribe to the site so they can listen to the premium. He just wants to earn you money, listeners. That's all he wants to do. Yeah, I mean, you could put it like that. Um, I'm not making any promises, but <laughs> we have all of our Pac-12 picks though on Thursday on our premium uh, podcast. Those are for members only, so listen to those. Those are really fun to do. Moving into ASU basketball, ASU basketball got a new recruit today. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about that? Technically, they did not get a new recruit. They got a new commitment. They got a new commitment. Excuse me. Yeah, his name is Alonzo Verge. I don't even. He's been very new onto the radar. Like they really weren't even recruiting him until a couple weeks ago. Uh, and he's a 6'3 combo guard. He was a NJCAA um, second-team All-American last year, averaged uh, 20 points, 20.8 points, 6.1 rebounds, 
6.1 assists, pardon me, 4.1 rebounds, shot 55.8% from the field, 32% uh, from the three-point line. Now, he visited ASU officially um, last weekend. Uh, I'd heard about it only at the ASU football game on Saturday did I hear about it, but uh, it, it seemed like one of those things where the coaches were trying to keep it hush-hush because they didn't want other schools to get win that ASU was on it and then try to get him to, to visit them before he made his commitment. Um, what you what you have from ASU is they're, they are um, aware of a couple of things. A, they really only have three true point guard or shooting guards that are on their roster, right? You have Remy Martin's a point guard, you have uh, Dort, and then you have Rob Edwards, who's the, the transfer who's eligible this year. So um, a little bit of a hedge. What happens if Dort has a great season and decides to go pro? What happens if Rob Edwards decides to go pro or something? Mm-hmm. Probably that won't happen, right? But worst case scenario... You could, though. It's possible. But worst case scenario, now you're adding a fourth guy to a backcourt and you can also go big, as we've talked about in the previous podcast, when you right. slide Dort over because he's a big body kid. Rob Edwards is a 6'4", bigger body kid. And then you have three of these four guys that could potentially be on the floor together. Mm-hmm. Um, not this season, but the following season. Right. So, yeah. And this was the highest ranked recruiting class in program history, according to 24-7 Sports. The last class. The, the, yes, excuse me. The last class, mm-hmm. uh, the, the one that's coming in for this this upcoming season. Uh, mm-hmm. The additions guards Rob Edward Dort, as Chris mentioned, Elias Valtonen. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, forwards Tayshawn Cherry and Zylan Cheatham, who had to sit out last season, and the center Euros Plavsic. So, guys, with all that said, who are your projected starters for the season opener? Well, I just wanted to add, I'll, get, I'll, I'll mention that, but I just wanted to also add ASU has Jalen House committed, mm-hmm. at the son of Eddie House. Um, and just because he'll be a freshman then, and you got those other guys probably. His going to have a harder time carving out minutes there. But he is somebody that probably recognizes that he's a three to four year college player. He's a six foot, six foot one type of a combo guard shooter. So it just, it sort of just loads up where you're at, right? Um, so and starters for this year, I think basically you have six guys for five spots. Okay. Yeah. You have Remy Martin's going to probably start, Rob Edwards is probably going to start. Uh, you have, uh, I think, there's a really good chance that Romello White starts. But if Romello White doesn't start, then it's going to be uh, Daquan Lake, mm-hmm. one of those two. But probably Romello White at the beginning of the season, mm-hmm. and then Zylan Cheatham is going to start. Okay, so I look at basically five guys. The six guys Dort. Well, I mean, I mean the six guys Kamani Lawrence. Pardon yeah. me. Okay, so my guess is that. Five of these six are starters. Martin, Edwards, Dort, Lawrence, Cheatham, and Romello White. The, the line to me is Kamani Lawrence going bigger, Dort going smaller. One of those right. two things. And then probably Daquan Lake is like your seventh guy. And then you got to figure out who your eighth guy will be. That could be going big and... You know, with Plavzic, mm-hmm. or that could be uh, Cherry. You know, I think Cherry has the ability to play as a center in some smaller lineups. So there's some versatility to Cherry, but those are probably like your candidates. And then the guy who could be a sleeper 
that nobody's talking about is Valtanen because of what he does with zone breaking. Mm-hmm. I think the zone breaking component of Valtanen is a plus uh, that could put him in, in in potential. But it's like Bobby Hurley said, he has no idea who it's going to really be. <laughs> yeah. And as I'm talking this whole thing out, I think people see like the scenarios. There's probably eight or nine guys that are going to play a lot of basketball early on in the season. And I will give credit to you because you said that Val Tonin was going to be a really important kind of underrated piece because you said this team might not be able to shoot as well as other teams ASU's had, and he has the ability to be on the floor as a, as a bigger guy and shoot the ball. Well, but don't give me credit because it hasn't happened yet. I mean, he, can, <laughs> okay. he could end up not playing at all, That's and then true. and then you'll let me know that was really wrong. Yeah. Bad analysis, Chris. What do you think, Jack? I, I so like I I look at the roster and I think that you have the potential to play uh, with a starting lineup with the three guards again with Remy Martin at the point and it's very similar to kind of what they would do last year and then you have Dort and, and Rob Edwards back there as well um, I think Cheatham will start at, at, at the four and then like, I think Romello White Daquan Lake just how they play they could split minutes pretty pretty evenly um, the difference is like last year when they would go to the bench. It would be Remy Martin coming in, and the mm-hmm. team would stay, would stay small. This year, when they go to the bench, they're going to be big. When they go to the bench, it's going to be going to two guards, probably having – like I think Kamani Lawrence will be like a perfect coming off the bench, like scoring punch kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, playing at the three gives you a little bit more size. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think like what Chris said, it's it's early. Um, part of the problem has been, you know, Tayshaun Cherry's been hurt for parts of the preseason and – Quan Lake's been hurt uh, a little while here, and, and Mickey Mitchell's been completely absent, and um, it's just kind of tough to tell exactly how all of these pieces are going to fit together. I think it's going to make for just a fascinating season to see which of these guys yeah. kind of picks up minutes, which of these guys becomes important parts of the team. Because, like even last year, once they started playing zone, it will you know they couldn't figure out who's going to be the zone breaker, who's going to be the dominant scorer. Uh, are you going to shoot the ball more on the outside? Or are you going to try to go inside? And now you have all these different pieces that you might have to be using to, to try to solve the same equation. I, I sort of agree with some of that. And then you also, but you said it's going to be sort of like last year, but I just think the profile of these guards is so different. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're not really shooters and they're not smaller undersized guys. So I just think again, like it, it's, it's going to be just a very different, type of a team in terms of the way that it looks and feels and and plays. And I don't even think that we really will get a a really great sense of that until they're probably a few weeks or a month or two into the season. And to finish up this podcast, we're going to transition back to football for a minute. And I just want you guys, your guys perspective through five games. Where do you think this ASU team is after defeating Oregon state pretty handily? Um, again, I think like if you were, to handicap things back at the beginning of the season for ASU to be three and two right now and to be playing, you know, to be running the football well and to, to defensively, you know, not be giving up a ton of points and a ton of big plays and to go into the PAC 12 South part of your schedule, knowing that there's not any team in this division that ASU is going to, that, that ASU couldn't beat. I think where they are right now is a pretty good spot because the worry was, well, even if ASU's playing well, their schedule and all the, the tough North teams they have to play is going to prevent them from being a contender in, in the division race. They can lose all three of these games to the North teams and still win out against the in their intra-division games and, and win the division. I think just the fact that that's a possibility right now, that was not a given at the beginning of the season, 
Um, it's it's probably this is about as good as I think you could have reasonably expected for for ASU. They they could have beaten San Diego State, but yeah, but they also could have lost yeah. to Michigan Michigan State. State. So they're 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 roughly about kind of what we expected. I think the way that they've done it has maybe been a little bit different than we expected. I don't know that we thought they would have this type of a run game potency against Washington or Oregon State, and, and the way that they did it. As far as the record, pretty universally, our staff thought ASU was better than the national expectations that people had. A lot of people were talking about this team being like a three-win team or a four-win team, and I just thought that was pretty ridiculous. Even like the Vegas line being whatever it was, four. It was four and a half maybe. Yeah, I think it's four and a half. On the over/under, I just told people like you gotta just bet that because <laughs> the South is not going to be that good. The Pac-12 is not going to be that good. There's too much offensive capability for this team. Um, but as we sit here through five games, I I, I still think like a, I was on the fence between ASU being a six-win team and a seven-win team. I I'm still kind of on the fence between ASU being a six and a seven-win. I just maybe more so lean to seven now than than six, which I did before the start of the season. And, um, but I still think that eight wins would be a surprise, like to get five wins out of these next seven games. It'd be tough. It's pretty, they would have it's to possible. Play, you'd have to just play really each of these games, especially against the South teams. You can't have mistakes and you can't like, you'd have to play at a very high execution level, which hasn't like. You can't have a game like the San Diego State game, for example. If they do win five of the next seven, they will. They will, at worst, I think, tie for the Pac-12 South. So, uh, and then also, I don't think that they're going to win fewer than three games the rest of the way. Like, (laughs) they're going to get to a bowl game. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty, pretty safe. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Right now for staff reporter Jack Harris and myself, Rob Warner, along with site publisher Chris Cartman, thanks for tuning in to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast.